This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 45, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today we're joined by hunter, angler, gardener, and cook Hank Shaw to talk about taking game from field to table. So stay tuned. All right. Hello, whitetail friends, freaks, whatever we are. Happy Wednesday. John, are we friends? Are we freaks? Is freaks a derogatory term when we're talking about whitetail folks? No, it's. Uh, I think everybody goes by their own thing. Yeah, you think it's, it, it's acceptable? We won't get any We won't get any flack. There's no snowflakes that feelings might get hurt about it? Surely. Surely no. Just minor, minor hate mail. Minor, minor hate mail. This podcast is brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest-lasting, fastest-cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. Simply put, the toughest saw on earth. Right now, when you visit wickedtreegear.com, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and get a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase. Exus Outdoor Gear, y'all like trail cameras. John, you like trail cameras? Dude, I'm a trail camera freak. Oh, look at that. Even using the word freak. So it can't be offensive if we're, if we're continuing to throw it around. Exodus Outdoor Gear, life's a passion. Pursue it. You've heard me talk about these guys for a while, and they have kick-ass cameras, and now they're launching a new Exodus Trek camera coming in at 150 bucks. So you probably had seen some stuff on social where they were doing the pre-orders. You probably want to jump on that. They're doing a deal right now for even uh, an even steeper discount than $150 for the first, I think, 200 or so folks who order this camera. Visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com to pre-order for this new camera today and use the promo code TRUTH. Uh, at checkout and save yourself an additional 20 bucks. We're also brought to you by Tecamani Seed. Everything is bigger and better in Texas. Would you agree, John? Don't mess with Texas. I'm telling you, it's the uh, it, it's a big state. You know it's what a- I mean? So everything's <laughs> got to be bigger. 
Yeah, it's if it's bigger, it's got to be better. Uh, no matter if you're in the South, the Midwest, or the Northeast, Tecamani Seed has your food plot needs covered. And guys, if you are thinking of doing food plots this year, um, Tecamani has a, 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 for a long time been heralded in the South. And if you have ever walked in the South uh, or has spent any time in the South, uh, you will notice that their soil is probably not the greatest for growing things. So if you can grow shit in Texas and grow it like wildfire, it's probably a pretty damn good seed. So visit techamani.com uh, and check out their product selector tool uh, to help pick the right seed for your needs. I like that, John, seed for your needs. A yep. little alliteration there. Use promo code That's truth right. at <laughs> use promo code truth at checkout and save twenty percent at techamani.com. And last but not least, this is Glacier Coolers. I know, John, you like to keep your beers cold, so why not do it with simply the world's finest? Whether you're hunting, camping, fishing, you'll enjoy smart design, stronger construction, and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com. Again, promo code truth for a twenty percent discount. And we are here, the beginning of January. 2018 rolling along deer season for many of us is probably over and uh for for a lot of us i've got uh, just a handful i think two weeks left if you're listening to this on the wednesday that it comes out and uh i'm gonna try to get a little something done man but the weather has been brutal lately john how are you faring out there in iowa has it been cold enough for you it's man it's been super cold um my neighbors i I talked to them and i said so is this what you guys were referring to as a typical iowa winter and they're like, hell no! It's actually this is even too cold for us. Um, <laughs> so it's it's been a unique winter, and it's been cold a lot in the Midwest, and I know the East has been super cold. Dude, it's uh, I like some tough hunting conditions. I usually one to not shy away from it, but I'm not gonna lie, man. I had to I had to skip out on a hunt this weekend because I was just like, you know what? Well, so I'll put it this way: I I was planning to go out on Saturday, and I told my wife I was like, hey, I'm gonna go out on Saturday. And she looked at me, she said, you're an idiot. And I was like, well, most of the time this statement is probably true. It's probably true now. And so I was like, you know, what? I'll text a buddy of mine and see if he wants to go out. Because I wasn't going to go hunt necessarily and just kind of meander around and do a hunt scout. I was, you know, it's cold enough where I was like, I just want to go into where I'm going to hunt and then, you know, sit for a couple hours and get out. So I texted my buddy and I was like, hey, man, you know, what do you think? You want to go out this evening? And because uh, it was a piece of property he has access to. And, and uh, he texted me back. Uh, exact wording was hard No. And uh, so that pretty much sealed it for me, and I was thankful that I had a buddy who was smarter than me to kind of keep me uh, indoors, indoors that day, man. But it's been wicked cold, dude. I don't know. It's I, I was talking to another buddy of mine who was in Michigan, and it was like in the negative twenty, whatever it was. He probably had similar stuff out in Iowa, but his he actually was starting to experience gear failure at that temperature. Yeah, I mean, it was um, well. Yesterday, my plan was to go out for my last sit. Uh, leaving, you know, for the ATA show tomorrow morning. And um, so I was going to go get to hunt one last day of the season and, um, you know, hang it up. Um, I had a buddy that backed out at the last minute. He was going to go with me. Um, He wanted to go, been talking about going, talking about going, you know, that kind of stuff. So nonetheless, he decided to not go. And I'm like, well, I'm heading out by myself. So I go outside and I'm like, wow, driveway's kind of icy. And I've got a pretty steep driveway. Mm Mm-hmm. Long story short, two and a half hours later, 400 pounds of rock salt hand thrown on my driveway. I was finally able to make it down my driveway. At that point, it was too dark, <laughs> and uh, that's it. My season's over. Right. You uh, you were hunting the the very elusive rock salt mar- monster. I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. familiar. Um, it's ridiculous, man. So, 
Yeah, it's it. You know, the ground temperatures were just so freaking cold around here, and then uh, we got a lot of rain yesterday. And as soon as that rain landed, it just instantly turned in, and it was uh, we were probably two inches thick of ice on our driveway. Yeah, I think we're getting that same weather system now that you got because um, today, you know, they, everyone left work early because it was starting to to rain and it was starting to freeze and i went out to my truck and it was already pretty much just encased in ice by the time i got out there and and so forth but uh you know the cold it's uh if you can get on deer right now if you have a good food source uh, you know some some corn or you know some type of grain um you're probably being the chips pretty good i'd imagine it's just i don't have oh yeah there's nothing around here right now that's even you know worthy of a of a reasonable food source and this cold stuff is super cold stuff. You know, it's looking for some thermal covers, not a bad idea either. Um, but that would also entail, it would mean that I would have to stay warm, which is like damn near impossible. Cause I have the circulation of like an 80 year, 80 year old man in my feet and those things just get like ice cubes. So I was, uh, you're like, uh, probably like my old man. He, he came up to Iowa, uh, from Kentucky, um, during the holidays and they basically came straight from Florida to Iowa, cool. Um, and they've got a they've got a little little spot down there, um, little vacation spot. So he comes up and he spent the whole entire holidays sitting in front of the fireplace with his winter coat on and a toboggan <laughs> on, gloves on, and he was just like, you know, and he's hard of hearing. So he's like, um, you know, bring me something to drink, and I'm like, well, do you want coffee? Huh? Do you want coffee? Huh? So I'm like, screw it. I just got him a cup of coffee. And then he's like, throw another log on the fire. He's like, it's cold in here, you know? <laughs> so he's bundled up, man. Like, he's ready to go hang out on the North Pole. Right. Um, oh, so, man, yeah, I, I, I envision that from your from the sounds of it, you're saying you're just as bad. Yeah, and we were talking, you know, before we jumped on the record here, what we keep our house temperature at. And, uh you know, I keep mine at a balmy 60, 62, 61. And actually, I have it set to go down to 59 at night. And it's just, I'm almost, I'm a, I'm cheap ass. What can I say? You know, it's like, that's more hunting gear I could probably buy if I didn't have to spend as much money on, on oil. So like you were saying, I just, yeah. tell, I just tell the kid like, hey, layer up, you know, throw on another set yeah. of pajamas and a robe and uh, get, get cozy because daddy ain't spending any more money on oil. <laughs> I got arrows yeah. to buy. Yeah. <laughs> What um what is what is gas or oil prices out there? I don't know what it is for a gallon right now. I think I filled my tank up. It was at a quarter tank, and I want to say it was like three hundred and eighty-seven dollars. And I think I have a three hundred gallon tank. Okay. Roughly. So, propane out here is about a dollar forty-nine in season. Uh, sometimes it gets a little bit lower out of season, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it's warm outside, you don't even, th- you know what I mean? It's just out of sight, out of mind. I wasn't yeah. even thinking about it. And we got into the end of the season and I'm like, oh crap, we're going to run out of propane. So we had to call and fill up our tank. We've got a, a thousand gallon tank under the driveway. Nice. And um, I'm like, eh, give me 500 gallons. That'll be good. <laughs> right. <laughs> nope. How, how quick do you run through that? Uh, it, it'll be close. Uh, we started out the year with about 350 gallons, mm-hmm. and so we added 500 to it. Um, and it, 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 we're estimating it's going to take us a thousand gallons to get through the winter. So we might have some days in March, uh, early April, where um, 
Yeah, the kids might be going to bed with a sweater on. Right. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> oh, man. And I just ran out of firewood, too. I got some I got some firewood brought in and stuff here, you know, in the fall. And, uh, yeah, I've already burnt burnt through that, too, so... Looks like we'll be we'll be paying the piper from here on from here on out. But you know this you know what this weather is good for? Ice skating. What's that? Ice skating. Yeah. You ever you ever ice skate? Um when I was a kid, we used to ice skate a whole lot. Um Yeah, and I think it's more of a northeast thing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, growing up in Kentucky, we didn't we typically didn't if we wanted to go ice skating, we had to go to an ice skating rink. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, so the, the ponds and stuff usually didn't quite harden up enough or get thick enough where you would chance it, you know? Right. What about so, roller, what, what about, about roller skating? Real big. How about roller skating? Roller skating. Yes. Dude. You know, I'm put just, your left foot in. Yeah. Put your left foot out. <laughs> a little, a little slow. Put your left foot in. Yeah. You <laughs> shake it all about. Yeah. Um, yeah, we used to do all that kind of stuff. There was a chance roller dome. We used to go roller skating a whole lot. Nice. Um, I'm just I'm envisioning that's, you. Uh, that's that that was the early days of. Uh, that's when I developed the silver tongue with the ladies. There you go. It, no doubt, dude. We had a. Uh, it was an intermediate school, so we had like a primary school or elementary school, rather than an intermediate before we went to the middle school, and mm-hmm. the. Uh, there was a roller rink right next door. And so every Thursday was roller skating day. Like you would sign up at the beginning of the year and every Thursday, you know, they would take the students over and you would roller skate after school till seven o'clock or so. And your parents would come pick you up. And, uh, yeah, I remember the, uh, the roller skating days. Like I had my own skates. I played on the roller, the roller hockey team and yeah, I could skate backwards pretty good. And that was definitely where you, uh, sharpened your skills with the, with the ladies, with the old slow skate, the speed skate oh, yeah. where everyone went out and like, you know, kamikaze into the wall because you were all young kids and you would have good control. You felt like you could skate pretty well until like things got squirrely and your recovery wasn't so good. And so <laughs> there was always some like, you know, disaster. And then there was always some type of drama, like someone didn't like someone and someone was going to fight outside the roller rink after after the speed skate, you know, because someone, oh, put, yeah. you know, I'm just imagining a young Johnny Utah with his flowing flowing locks, with his with his flowing Kentucky waterfall mullet, just just <laughs> just flowing, just in the flow around the around the roller rink, man. <laughs> well, I'll be honest, I really couldn't skate that good. Um, so a lot of the dudes were out there like skating and getting all hot and sweaty and you know that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like hanging out with all the girls. There like, you go. What's up, Johnny you know? Law? Like, we, we, you know. I, I can get my mom to probably drive us to the mall to go see a movie this weekend. You know what I mean? Nice. So that was kind of my thing. Um, nice. And then I usually, um, I stayed away from the fights, man. When I was younger, I, dude, I was a little, little, little guy, like really, really, really little. Right. So uh, I just made sure I was friends with everybody. Cause I was like, God, I'll, I'll totally get my ass kicked. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't do any of the, any of the tussle on that. Cause I was, you know, I don't know. I, I weighed under under 80 pounds all the way up until I was probably in like eighth grade or seventh, eighth I grade. I graduated college at 129 pounds. Yeah, man. That's, damn, man. How tall are you, too? I forget. Uh, 5'10". 5'10". Okay, so you, yeah, you were, uh, you were a thin fella. 
Five ten, yeah. buck yeah. buck thirty. I look like a refugee. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's good. It was stuff. awful. Um, yeah. It was horrible. But um, no, and then it was you know it was years later that um, you know I started getting into the gym and and then metabolism finally started slowing down and right. Um, I actually I, I was at the gym the other night. I got on the scale and. I tipped it at two fifteen the other night. So. <laughs> man, yeah. So that's that's the, that's a difference, man. Going from like the the old days at a buck thirty to to two fifteen. Yeah. I'm I'm damn near the same size I was when I graduated from high school. Because in wrestling, it's like you know I wrestled anywhere from like one thirty five up to like one fifty five. You know, depending on uh-huh, what year uh-huh. and whatever. And uh, I think that's what my fighting weight was actually whenever I left for Montana in September and was all in shape and ready to go out there. I think the, I weighed in at like 154 right before I left. So I was, yeah, I was, that's probably the leanest I've been in in a, in a, in a while, but you know, it definitely, it was needed for the, uh, for the terrain. But, uh, I don't know, man, any, uh, any other hunting updates? One thing, one update I wanted to give, um, and I just thought of it actually, as we were getting, getting, uh, ready to record was, so, one, we missed our um, one-year anniversary of the show this summer. Like, somehow we missed it. I just thought of it today. It was in, like, August or June or something like that. I don't even remember uh-huh. what it is. That's how terrible I am. Um, we missed that. So our 50th show is coming up. So I we'll have to think of something fun or interesting to do for the 50th show. Um, and the other there thing that – Yeah, the other thing I recognized, too, was that in almost coming up this summer on two years of having the show going – Mm-hmm. There has not yet been one f bomb dropped on the entire show. In 50- Are you serious? I'm serious. There's not been one f bomb, oh. and so I feel like <laughs> I really wish you wouldn't have said that. <laughs> I know, not right? that I'm gonna like try to do it. It's just now I'll be thinking about it. Yeah, um, I'll be thinking about not saying it. Yeah. Um, anybody that knows me well, and um, you know, especially knows my background and my family and stuff like that, um, the f bomb is like. That's part of the normal vocabulary. Oh man! You know, like yeah. you drop the f bomb, and somebody's like, "Watch your mouth," and I'm like, "What I say? What I, what say? I say? Yeah, exactly." I the f bomb. I mean, what I say? Exactly. I. Uh, it's it's usually a pretty a pretty solid staple of my vocabulary most days. The only time I think during the course of any given day that I don't use it is during the time mm-hmm. that we spend on the podcast together. That is like <laughs> that is like the only time I use it at work. Um, yeah. you know, only in the, the correct company, of course, you know, cause other folks may not uh, look so kindly upon it, but, uh, I was actually, That's right. That's I was right. actually thinking of that today. Cause I was like, huh, I was like, still have a clean rating in iTunes. Imagine that. <laughs> so that's not yeah. going away. That's not going away yet. Yeah. But, um, no, you know, it's funny you sit cause you know, you're right. I mean, obviously that word offends some people and, and out of respect for other people, um, you know, anytime I'm in a position where other people are listening to me talk, I, I, you know, I try not to use it. I'm not a different person. I just try to make sure I leave that word out or whatever, you know? Yeah. Cause um, th- there's a handful of words that will really do that. You know what I mean? They're really like, you know, there's, there's those words that, what was it? George Carlin did the seven words you can't say on TV or radio or on broadcast uh-huh. or whatever. It, yep, you know, yep. some of those words are okay to say and people are okay, you know, fine with it, but there are just a handful of, you know, in today's world what we'll call as trigger words <laughs> you know what i mean where yeah. it's like there's um, that c word that ooh, i know man. that's still a bad one yeah that's the i don't know that yeah you use that one you got to be prepared 
You know what I mean? Like that's like yeah. pulling out. That's like hitting the the the, the, the nuclear button. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. going to take the the situation from zero to sixty pretty quick. You know? Yeah, and, that's uh, the equivalent of hitting a girl in the junk. Yeah. <laughs> they don't like that. No, no, they do not. And uh, yeah, I and I don't like it. Um, and uh, yeah, that's 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 a good one. Um, but yeah. speaking of being politically correct, one thing uh, that was interesting. So today, um, for those of you tuning in, John and I aren't going to continue to talk only about the F word in roller skating and uh, and sweet mullets <laughs> at the roller rink. We're uh, we have an awesome guest on today, um, Hank Shaw from uh, the, the 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 chef and the, and the cookbook writer Hank Shaw. I think he's written Buck Buck Moose and uh, Quail something Cottontail. He's that he's getting ready to I think do a, a live event for on the West Coast. And what made me think of it was, is we were talking about being politically correct. And actually his background is interesting that he came from a political writing uh, uh, bureau background where he followed, you know, uh, uh, candidates that were running for governor. You know, I think he actually moved to California when he moved to California was to cover Schwarzenegger when he was running for office. Um, And so he has a political background, which is really interesting. And, you know, you'll hear during the course of the podcast and he really kind of got out of it. Um, because it was just so much ick, you know, in politics overall that he retreated to the, to the safe space, which is to climb into the, into the woods and, uh, just, you know, uh, remove himself from all human contact, uh, when he could to try to get his head right. Um, which I think we all can kind of, you know, uh, understand that. And I think that a lot of the reason why we all like to retreat to the, to a deer stand or to a goose blind during the off season, or even just to go do some shed hunting and stuff like that is to get out and, and enjoy nature and allow ourselves some time to just clear our headspace and disconnect from the world at large and just, you know, connect ourselves with nature and things that are what might seem to be more real uh, in a world that sometimes seems a little bit surreal. So mm-hmm. with that, man, if we if we don't have any other updates, I think we can go ahead and get a uh, Hank Shaw crank and this is a, a good show. And, uh, and I uh, hope you all enjoy it. And uh, I'm sure you'll have some uh, good recipes coming out of this uh, conversation as well. Cool. Let's do it. Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear saws. If you're tired of cheap-ass, flimsy hand saws, or better yet, a pole saw that doesn't work for a dam, try Wicked Tree Gear, the toughest saws on earth. And actually, right now, they're launching two, as of ATA, new products. One is the Pro Blade that will fit onto any pole saw, and the other is the Beast uh, hand saw. Uh, both great products, so make sure to check those out when they are available on the website. And you can visit them at wickedtreegear.com and use the promo code TRUTH to save 20% on any purchase that you make on their website and receive free ground shipping. And now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. Today, I'm super stoked to uh, to introduce the guest, the guest that I have on today. Um, I've been waiting for a while, or been wanting to uh, have this gentleman on for a while. I've been kind of following some of his uh, his information. I'm kind of a closet foodie. Um, I enjoy kind of breaking down my own game and, and kind of using all the parts as, as much as possible. Um, so this guy kind of fell right under that kind of uh, that uh, title or that uh, that uh, you know category, and so I wanted to definitely have him on, especially because we've been talking about some stuff that is related to after the shot and after you harvest the animal. And the gentleman I'm speaking about is the one, the only Hank Shaw. He is a, a chef, a hunter, angler, forager, a wild game food expert. Uh, he's always kind of looking for new and interesting things to cook up and get on the grill. He's written uh, several books, you know, just to mention a couple: is Buck Buck Moose, Duck Duck Goose. Hunt, uh, gather, cook, and uh, pheasant, quail, and cottontail. So whenever you're talking about wild game preparation and how to make it happen in a good way, I think we have the right guy to talk to. So first and foremost, thanks for coming on the show. And how are you doing, my friend? 
I'm doing good. I'm uh, I'm recovering from a snipe hunt yesterday, believe it or not. Oh, snipe hunt. Uh, do do tell. How was and that? It, it, it did not involve a pillowcase, salt, or a flashlight, and it was during the daytime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I know. I remember my first quote-unquote snipe hunt. I was in a field. I grew up in the country in Pennsylvania, and I was in a field with some... Uh, some older older guys that were friends, uh, you know, of, of my friend's brother, you know, and so they thought it would be funny to tell us about snipe hunting as we were sled riding down this hill. And I spent two hours of that evening walking through the snow trying to find snipes. Never found a snipe and never been on a real snipe hunt. So I actually thought people were pulling my leg for a while whenever they uh, were talking about snipe hunting. So we'll start there. What is a snipe, in fact? A snipe is the last shorebird that we're allowed to hunt in uh, North America. It's a relative of the woodcock. Okay. And where uh, woodcock live in kind of boggy alder thickets, um, snipe like the borderlines of marshes and flooded paddocks and fields and things. They're they're real small birds. They're extraordinarily difficult to hit. I mean, the origin of the term sniper is from people uh, who hunt snipe because okay. they they flush erratically. They fly like a like a bat on methamphetamines, <laughs> and they're like maybe the size of a dove. So right. it's, it's, it's an, ex, it's a challenging hunt, um, but it's super fun. I mean, it's, it might be the most, it's not the most calorie negative hunt I've ever been on. I, I, I've hunted ptarmigan at 13,000 feet. That's, oh, that's clearly the most calorie negative hunt ever. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> this would be close second. Nice. I like the, uh, the visual I got with a bat on methamphetamines. That was a, <laughs> that was a fantastic visual right there. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so, you know, I, I give you a little bit of an introduction there. And, you know, like I said, I had been following your, your, uh, information for a while, your blog. Um, and then of course I had listened to you in a couple of different formats. Um, I'm a little bit of a closet foodie. Um, so, and I, you know, Buck Buck Moose was uh, on my Christmas list for this year. So hopefully someone will get that for me. It'd be the first year that I actually got something that was on my list. So hopefully hint, that comes hint. to, yeah, hint, hint. <laughs> Um, but before we kind of jump into a, b- a bunch of topics that what we want to cover today, why don't you give us a little bit of information about yourself, your background, where you're from, how you started hunting and fishing and, and so forth. Sure. Um, I, I live in Northern California now, uh, although I've lived in six or seven states, I lived track. Um, I was born, uh, I was born in New Jersey near Newark. Okay. Um, so not born in the country. I was born, um, as a, as a true blue giants fan, we had season tickets. So, uh-huh. uh, we're we're sad this year. Yeah, very um, sad. <laughs> <laughs> very very sad. Um, but I've been fishing and foraging since I was a, a young kid. So mm. those pieces of this puzzle, I've always been involved in. So I mean, I, there's I have these glossy memories of me being in the in the 1970s, you know, picking beach peas and and blueberries and digging clams and things. And then, you know, I've, there's pictures of me with my first fish was a, you know, like a fluke, a flounder, uh, when I'm like four or five years old and that right. kind of thing. So, so I've got that uh, in my DNA, but I didn't really start hunting until I was 30. Um, okay. so I picked it up when I was living in Minnesota. And so the last, I'm 47 now. So the last mm. 17 years have been this increasing whirlwind to the point where I'm now spending easily 90 days a year wow. in the field for something, um, whether it's fish or snipe or, or deer or elk or antelope, uh, ducks. Uh, I'll be goose hunting tomorrow morning, for example. Man, goose is uh, something that I just got into and that is kind of grabbed a hold of me with a vengeance. I went for my it, first time last weekend and now it's all I want to do. Yeah. Uh, we hunt specks and snows in NorCal. Uh, a lot of people don't know that that 
northern that northern California is home to nine million wintering waterfowl. Wow! So we shoot more birds in California than any state other than Louisiana. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of birds, man. So that's that's wild. You're uh, from New Jersey. I live in uh, right outside Philadelphia right now. So oh, there you go. Not too far from your. Uh, from your original stomping grounds. I'm, I'm curious though, man, cause I know like, as you'd mentioned, you might have to stop this conversation if you're an Eagles fan. Oh no, I grew up, I grew up near, uh, I grew up near Pittsburgh. So I'm a diehard okay. Steeler fan. Yeah. So okay, we can still talk. Yeah. We're okay. <laughs> we're okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, I, I was reading your story a little bit or just like a little bit of your background and stuff on your blog, of course. And, and I found it really interesting because you've had kind of like a, you know, a circumlocutious, if you will, I'm going to throw out a 25 cent word there. It's the only time you'll probably ever hear me use that word. Um, it was a bit of a wild ride from, you know, I know you did some political writing prior to getting into the, that was my life for 18 years. Yeah. So how does someone go from that type of, uh, you know, life to what you do now, which is like, you're very much in the truest sense, kind of a hunter gatherer, right? I mean, that's like your life evolves around that approach. So I'm curious how you make that transition from something that's completely departed from that to a degree. I think in some way, you know, you, you get a chance to, to think about this question because I get asked it a lot. Right. Um, and, you know, given the chance that I've had to reflect upon really what's happened, uh, it's a reaction. Mm-hmm. It's when you work in on Capitol Hill or on some state's Capitol Hill, you know, my last Capitol. I, that's the reason why I moved around a lot is because I, I was kind of an itinerant state government reporter. Um, okay. So I covered capitals in a number of states. So when that's your day in and day out, you know, the, the, the ability to get into nature in any form, whether it's, um, I've never actually hunted in a deer stand. We can talk about that later, but whether it's, whether it's deer hunting or ducks or picking mushrooms or getting a, a day in the water or even just, you know, scouting, um, it's not someone lying to you every day. It's not, you know, <laughs> yeah. the hypocrisy that you get. And and, and especially as you – know, I'm not going to get too political, but in, in the general sense, when I started that job, politics is about compromise and debate. It was about people with very different points of view in, re, in, in different regions coming together and wrangling over a problem and fit and solving that problem. Right. And, and over the years that I covered politics, it became less that compromise and debate and more people shouting past each other. Right. And so it doesn't matter what your politics are. That's boring. Right. <laughs> it's just boring. You know right. I mean? Like, I, like you're a poopy head. No, you're right. a poopy head. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. and it's just like, eh, I, I, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. So the the woods or the fields or the or the waters became my solace and it became a place where i could get away from that 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 ick it's mm-hmm. the it's the shower that you need to take after you cover congress <laughs> yeah you know i i can completely kind of understand um that that feeling and i think for a lot of people too you know they may not be able to be able to articulate it but i think a lot of people look for that and that's one of the reasons why they are so passionate about the outdoors right cuz the one place where you can go to be with your own thoughts and in a lot of cases cuz you know hunting and, and or fishing and in many instances is a is a solo sport or a solo adventure um you know i i particularly find you know i did some western hunting this year and for me the western hunt wasn't as mind clearing i guess you would say even though the vistas were amazing and the mountains you were climbing were beautiful and stuff like that but it was such a mental and physical you know struggle you know and grind um, that you really didn't have time to decompress and be with your thoughts because you were just trying to make it up over the next up over the next mountain, you know, into the next you know uh, drainage or the next uh, dark timber or whatever. For Flatlander. Me, 
<laughs> I mean, because I, I mean, seriously, I mean, I'm not to bust your balls too bad, but yeah. uh, but I mean, you get used to that, yeah. You know? And then if that becomes your style of hunting, then we get that same sort of mental break that you get in a stand. Oh, for like, sure. Like I, I don't know how I would handle a stand actually. I mean, I might go go bonkers. You know? Right, right, for sure. And like, and I definitely <laughs> recognized as I was doing it where I was like, you know, for me, this was it was different. So it was probably a lot of sensory overload too, because everything I was doing, because this was my first trip west to hunt, you know, and so everything oh, I was okay, doing yeah. was the first time, you know what I mean? So it was a lot to take in where, you know, that was a two week trip. And then I spent a week um, with a buddy hunting some whitetail and in, in Ohio took a trip. And that for me was a very peaceful, reflective, meditative kind of hunt because it was yeah. 12 hours yeah. on stand with nothing but my own thoughts, you know, and the only you know, uh, physical or mental toll was the hike in and the hike out really and making the plan for the next day. Um, you know, so that's a, so I can totally understand where you need, the, need the cleanse and it's a nice, it's a nice reset button to hit. Um, for sure. You know, um, but you kind of went, you know, all whole hog and was like, you know, what, what was it that was like, you know what, I'm going to start, did you always kind of cook, you know? Was, yeah. Was it, okay. So. Yeah. I have a restaurant background. So before okay. I was a newspaper reporter, um, I was a low level chef in restaurants. So, you know, line cook and sous chef at a small place, you know, I never owned my own restaurant. I never ran a full kitchen. Um, and I actually had been really uncomfortable calling myself a chef until very recently because Hmm. I, you know, sure I'd worked in, in restaurants and been a cook there, but it had been so long. I'd felt I kind of no longer earned the honor. And it's only been since about, well, I mean, since I started doing this full time again in 2010, Mm -hmm. uh, that I've, done enough of the things other than cook because a chef's not a cook right all all cooks are chefs not all well i'm sorry all all chefs are cooks not all cooks are chefs right um and i've only recently kind of earned my stripes back to be able to to be okay with that that moniker um but yeah i mean i have professional cooking experience from back in you know my college years my early 20s Mm mm-hmm and so it just kind of seemed like marrying that, you know, passion for the outdoors and your your passion for cooking seemed like the natural, you know, because that's some, takes some cojones, right? Because, you know, pretty good career path when you're, you know, working in, you know, the, the environment you were working in before with the, you know, the political kind of writer career, right? And that's kind of takes some cojones to say, you know what, I'm going to cut bait and just go, go left here, right? So what was that like, I guess, It was scary. Moment? I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, it's a, I, I um... My, uh, I was a bureau chief. Uh, I moved to California to cover Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. And so my bureau shut down in 2008. And so I can kind of saw the writing on the wall. It was a bad time for newspapers. Mm-hmm. And so I started to save money a lot. Right. And then I was working for a kind of an insider baseball political junkie newsletter for two years. Mm-hmm. And, but meanwhile, I was ramping up Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, which is probably how you first heard of me. Right. Um, it's, it's the website that I've been running now for 10 years. Yep. And uh, I was nominated for a James Beard Award for that website in 2009. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then again in 2010. So when you get there, there's, I don't know. It's the Oscars of the food world. That's right. just the easiest way to put it. There's okay. no higher honor in our world than that that award. And when you get nominated, you're in the top three. So you're already on the podium. Right. And um, that opened a lot of doors. So it it basically gave me the courage plus the fact that I had a year's worth of expenses in the bank. So right. in case it went south, 
Um, I wasn't going to, you know, be living in a van down by the river. <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> Even though it is attractive some days. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. and, you know, Chris Farley may hear us in peace. Right. Uh, yes, exactly. But yeah, so I was like, all right, let's give this a go. And, you know, I took a massive pay cut and it was scary as hell, but it worked. And each year got a little bit better and a little bit better. And then, you know, now I'm in, you know, I'm, it's not like I'm driving Ferraris or, you know, you know, $80,000 pickup trucks or anything, but right. uh, I can pay the bills and, and do what I love. And feel good about it with a clean conscience, which is, I think, the most yeah. important thing, right? You know? Yeah. So many of my colleagues who lost their journalism jobs, they ended up becoming spokespeople or uh, corporate spokespeople mm-hmm. or, or campaign people. And, and you know, you're not supposed to do that as a reporter. You right. know, I mean, as we always like to say, neither side has a lock on idiocy. Right. So, <laughs> so I mean, when you when you cross the floor, you got to pick a side. And I, I couldn't do that. I still can't do, do that. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I know what you mean. It's uh, um, I like to say that I'm pretty middle of the road. I like to say that I just I, I, I'm a I'm an intelligent observer and aggregator of information. That's kind of how I, kind of how the I older I get, the more I feel like Mr. Hand from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> I know. What are you people on dope? I know, right? I know. Soon I'll be shouting at clouds. Oh, I know. It's like I definitely feel like the old man on my on my. Uh, I was just I was out looking at my lawn because my neighbors doing a a bunch of renovations at their place. They're putting a second story on, and we had a bunch of snow, and of course my you know yard was wet, and someone ran their truck through like part of the edge of my yard, and it just like infuriated me. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, oh my god, if sixteen year old you would see you right now, he'd punch you in the face. You know, getting pissed <laughs> off about my yard, so. Um, but let's shift gears here to, to hunting. Sure. I want to, I want to talk to you a little bit about hunting. I'm just kind of curious, you know, you know, you've lived in a bunch of different places, right? And you kind of talked about what you were hunting and, and or fishing. I guess you mentioned fishing most specifically with New Jersey, but you know, what did you hunt predominantly growing up? And then what do you predominantly hunt now? I guess, is there, is well, there a species that you focus on mostly? So I started when I was 30. Okay. Oh, that's right. So that's I right. didn't hunt at all. And in fact, weirdly, I didn't know any hunters growing up. Oh, so, um, what I started hunting is what I hunt now. So, um, you know, probably small game, small game is probably the most, that's, I'm more comfortable with a shotgun in my hand than a rifle. Okay. But weirdly, I'm a much better rifle shot than I am a shotgun shot. So I'm, I'm good at a shotgun. I'm okay. I'm probably, but I know people who are better than me, a lot of people, but I'm, I'm unusually good with a with a rifle for some reason. I think it's just because I have a slow heart right now and I don't really get buck fever because I don't care. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, oh, that was a nice deer. Let's shoot it. Right. Uh, right. And at le- let me let me say this: I have not yet gotten buck fever. So okay. I, I I believe that buck fever is the same thing as seasickness, which is you may not yet have been seasick, right. but there is an ocean condition out there that will get you seasick. So right. I'm sure at some point there's going to be some like that probably like Boone and Crockett, and then there'll be like some guy next to me who knows deer will be like, "Holy shit! Oh my god! Oh my god!" And like, should I be excited? I'm like, yes, you should. Yeah, you should be freaking out right now. <laughs> so uh, do you do you so you're you predominantly hunting in California now? Or are you taking some adventure hunts I, every I hunt year all over the country? Awesome. Um, he, uh, I like. Uh, weirdly, I just shot my first whitetail buck. Nice. Um, I've shot lots of mule deer bucks and lots of blacktail bucks. Um, but the, and the whitetail buck is a coos deer of all things. So, yeah. um, it's a pretty nice one too, but I, I love deer hunting in the sense that it's, it connects me with, 
arguably a million years mm-hmm. of of hominid background. I mean, deer made us human, and mm-hmm. something like a deer made us something like a human, and right. and, and it, there's a cultural biological weight to deer hunting that uh, freaks me out a little bit, mm-hmm. but also makes the the pursuit uh, more rewarding weighty serious than say going rabbit hunting right yeah Um, it's interesting like i've listened to you know um when you mentioned the biological piece of it right it's like i've listened to joe rogan quite a bit you know i like his his podcast and you know i also get into kind of some of the the medical side of you know i'm kind of into fitness and stuff like that so like the whole idea of like what your body goes through whenever it's acquiring wild protein, right, is very much like a natural predatory kind of reaction or approach that we have. And it does something to us physically. You know what I mean? Like it's and that's one of the things that he talked about on like one of his shows. And and it kind of made sense a little bit to where you, like what you're saying is like there's this reaction that you have during that type of hunt. Because I don't get the same when I when I goose hunt, when I turkey hunt, but whenever I elk hunt or whenever I'm whitetail hunting. Like there's just like this different feeling that I have. And it's not a, I won't say it's an emotional feeling per se, you know what I mean? Cause I think I can understand what that would feel like there's, but there's like this overwhelming something that I just, I don't know how to describe it, but you just feel different. You know what I mean? So that's interesting. Interesting that you mentioned that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah, I think a lot of people listening to this will go through their own thoughts and be like, yeah, that's right. You know, you don't necessarily put it into words all the time, but um, it's different. You know, I mean, there are guys, you know, most of us probably listening to this will go look for, you know, a runner deer for as long as it takes. Mm-hmm. Whereas I know lots of lots of duck hunters who if they sail a bird, like, oh, sailed a bird. Right. Yeah. You know, there's and d- it's, it's just different, you know. Yeah, there's definitely some type of connection because you'll 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 track a deer for days to try to find it and be you know it impacts you you know what <laughs> i mean i guess is the easiest way to easiest way to say it um yeah i know. lost a deer overnight once and i could i couldn't sleep yeah yeah i mean knock on wood i've i've had i've helped buddies i've not had my own experience and of course as soon as i say that you know i'm going out, <laughs> I'm going out right after christmas so it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just i just screwed myself basically um, I love the TV shows where it's like, I think we shot him just a little far back. And it's like, you know, there's like, you know, grass coming out of the arrow and, you know, it's like right. they, 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 you know, they hold the deer up and it's like 17 days later, and, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's cool, man. How about, uh, so you, did you, uh, you're already out West. I was going to say head out West, but that's only for us flatlanders, as you had mentioned earlier. Um, <laughs> did you head out to any, I guess, you know, uh, do any elk hunting this year? I didn't hunt elk. This, well, I mean, this year, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I guess I did. I hunted uh, cow elk in Monument, Oregon, in February. Nice. So that's this year. How's um, that trip? It was it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it was just crazy. We put, I think we put nine elk on the ground in ninety minutes. Holy smokes, man! Yeah, that's a yeah. Rip. It was it was pretty pretty crazy. Um, it doesn't. Yeah, get I much was all I was all set to shoot this thing at four hundred fifty yards and. 
And she walked up 50 yards, shot her offhand, blasted up the heart. She died where she stood. Dunsky. And it's like you never know what's going to happen, right? You know, you're used to this sniper shot, which is what I did with the coup steer. And right. then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, there it is. Let's shoot it. Um, and, okay, get the knife. You game, know, game over. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The only sad part, the only thing that I get sad about after a, a early success is just that I kind of look at it. I'm like, all right, so now I don't have an excuse to get out of like household duties and get, <laughs> get into the timber. Oh, sure, you do. You you know? Well, honey, I got to process this thing myself. Hank told me. Oh yeah, no, I did that this year. It, the, this, so this is a, we'll we'll get into some processing later. But I got to tell you this story since you brought it up. So I, I I shot the buck my buck this year during archery season, and got a, had a freezer and stuff, and I kind of took care of it on the spot and got him you know uh, I got the deer skinned and you know quartered at least so I could get him from my buddy's parents' place back to my house and I'd have time to take care of it. Waited so I put it in the freezer. Waited so the following weekend where I had some time, busted out the meat grinder, did some did some carving and grinding, and my daughter had one of her friends over. Now my daughter shoots a bow and she goes hunting with me. She's only nine, uh, but she's cool with it. It doesn't bother mm-hmm. her. She's been around it since you know all of her life. Um, so her friends are running around, and I've got like these whole like deer legs laying up on the <laughs> up on the it's counter. Like good fellas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And I made, oh, Polly, we won't see Polly no more. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was like, and I asked her, I was like, do you know what this is? And she's like, no. I was like, well, this is a deer leg. And she just looked at my daughter, like, just like white face, like couldn't believe that that was happening. So, um, but I just figured I owed her a little bit of an education. You know, I figured it was my du- my duty to do that. That's uh, where meat comes from. Yeah, exactly. Um, so speaking of, you know, where food comes from, the other side of it, and I definitely want to get into like the deer and the processing here in, in a few seconds, but I also want to kind of touch on, like, I know you do a lot of foraging as well. Um, and I know you had mentioned that was something that you definitely were doing early on, you know, as early as you can remember. Um, you know, so what types of things are you particularly like, so since you're kind of knowledgeable, particularly about, you know, the area that I live in now, you know, the Pennsylvania area, like what types of things would you forage for the things that I'm used to kind of going after is the, you know, morel mushrooms in the spring, but that's the only foraging that I've ever really done. What are some other opportunities for folks that live in the uh, kind of like the North of Northeast mid Atlantic kind of region? Well, the cool thing about, um, your region is that the flora of the East is very, very similar all the way to the great plains all the way up to ontario all the way down to jacksonville and so that huge swath of the eastern seaboard all going on all the way to the prairies of you know wisconsin and and illinois uh so anybody who lives in that part it's all the same pretty much there's going to be more of one thing and less of another but it's not uncommon to find the same set of plants in alabama as it would be in in vermont so um, mushrooms, God, there's mushrooms. You, the problem with you guys is, is you're, it, every, all mushrooms are rain dependent, but your rains are way more variable than ours. Right. We have a rainy season and a dry season. And so when it's a rainy season, we know they're going to be there. And for you guys, you've got mushrooms all the way from your, your other spring mushroom besides the morel would be the pheasant back. Okay. Um, and then there's just a succession of edible mushrooms that will go all the way until the first snow. Um, you've got see, all kinds of berries. I mean, the Eastern berries, you know, good blueberries. Uh, you've got any number of bramble fruits and sort of a pro tip, anything that looks like a blackberry, like any berry that mm-hmm. has the structure of a raspberry or a blackberry mm-hmm. is edible. That's good. They're all edible. Nice. So that's, you're never going to go wrong on that one. And in terms of the vaccinium clan, which is the blueberry, blueberry clan. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you'll hear like, oh, no, you can't eat X or Y berries. Well, the, the trick with 
any of the blueberry clan is that if you pick up a blueberry, store-bought blueberry or anything like that, and you look at the bottom of the berry, there's kind of a, a star pattern on the bottom of the berry. Mm-hmm. It's a very distinctive pattern. It used to be where the, um, the flower was. If you see that pattern, and hum- this is a cool thing about being a human, um, we're really good at pattern recognition. Right. We're one of the best animals in the world at pattern recognition. And so that if you memorize that star pattern on the bottom of the blueberry, any berry in the wild that you see that has that star pattern is edible. That's pretty cool. Yep. So they're all um, they are all uh, uh, bushes too. So they're all some some sort of shrub. The tallest I've ever seen them about eye height, but usually they're low. They're lower bushes. Right. Uh, you've got cranberries. Uh, if you know someone who knows where a cranberry bog is, and they tell you um, they want something from you because that's something you guard you guard jealously. <laughs> uh, you've got. You know, you've got acorns, you've got hickory nuts of various forms. You guys, you have butternuts. Butternuts are really good. Um, Interesting. I never even thought got, of that. You've got hazelnuts if you know where to find them. Um, hazelnuts are always a fight with the squirrels. Yeah. Uh, your seaside foraging is really good. You've got sea rocket. You've got um, pickleweed, which is – it's salicornia is the actual name of it, but it's got a zillion names like saltwort, glasswort, pickleweed, chicken feet. Um, sea beans. Mm-hmm. I've heard uh, sea beans before. You've got all all seaweeds in North America uh, are edible, except for like one or two, and the ones that are not edible just taste bad. They won't poison you. So there's a there's a thing. That, that is that's good to know. <laughs> uh, you know, you've got rose hips uh, out in the east. You have these Ragosa roses, which have uh, big, bright red rose hips that are, you know, they're big. They're like the size of a cherry pepper. Right. And they're fantastic. You don't want to eat the seeds. The seeds are what they make itching powder out of, but you eat the fruit down around it. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I mean, uh, in fact, you have a, a, you are a, a very good spot to learn from the greatest forager of them all, a guy named Ewell Gibbons. Ewell Gibbons. I'm writing this down. Yeah. Ewell, Ewell Gibbons, if, if you're listening to this and you're of a certain age, um, you'll remember him – if you're really old, you remember him because he was a household name at one point in the 50s and 60s. Hmm. Uh, and I, I wasn't live then, but in the 70s, he did Grape Nuts cereal commercials. And okay. so the joke was – he basically, do you ever eat a pine tree? Most parts are edible. And <laughs> he's, just, he's a kind of funny, cranky old guy. But he was he lived in Pennsylvania. Nice. And he lived in eastern Pennsylvania. So uh, all of Yule Gibbons' books, Stalking the Wild Asparagus is the most famous one. Nice. So I'm curious, man, with with morel with mushrooms, right? Because that's something that I definitely go out and try my hand at. Um, mm-hmm. Is there? I always hear people talk about, you know, they they grow next to birch trees or they grow next to whatever. Like, is there any type of tree that would signify where there's going to be a certain crop of a certain type of mushroom? Is that something that's true, or is that something that just people? It's true, but it's regional. Okay. So elms are big for morels where you live. Um, oaks are always good for bolete's and bolete, uh, B-O-L-E-T-E. It's a big family of mushrooms. They don't have gills. They have like spongy pores underneath them. And, uh, most bolete's happen to like oaks. So do amanitas and amanitas also like, uh, and, and almost all amanitas are, are poisonous. Um, but the a general rule is if you see an amanita mushroom, 
chances are a bolete is going to be somewhere around because they, for whatever reason, they're connected. Hmm. Um, we have an edible amanita here in California called amanita velosa, which you know you find it after the rains in March next to oaks. So yes, those kinds of associations are true. Like if you live in the in the middle of the country and you're looking for morels in the spring, cottonwoods. Hmm. Cottonwood morels are a thing in like Oklahoma and Kansas and those, those, those kinds of places. Interesting. Are there any parts of the country that you prefer personally in terms of their forage versus others? Is there, some, is oh, there a yeah. place that's I mean, vastly different? The West is the best, baby. I mean, <laughs> the, just, I mean it just is. I mean, it's it's if, if we could get rid of the, the actual people in California, it'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> be, because I mean, if you think about it, California is the it, it's it's weird in every respect. It's weird, and the people are weird. The politics are weird. The uh, the the set of crops that we grow are weird. The environment is weird. We have so many microclimates. Mm-hmm. We have like something, some incredible percentage of the of the plants and mushrooms in California only live in California. Really? We have like thirty seven kinds of currants and gooseberries. Jeez. You guys have like two, right? So you know, and we have. I mean, I can go out. In fact, it just rained a bunch out here, so I'm planning on going out for mushrooms in the next week or so. There's a chance that I'll be able to pick fourteen different kinds in one trip. Holy smokes, man. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's no contest. I mean, that doesn't mean I don't love foraging Minnesota or New England or, you know, Texas, but it's just, if you're looking for something to, I mean, again, like, yeah, we had a frost this morning, but it was a high 55. So all of those spring greens, we get them in the dead of winter. Wow. Yeah. That's true. I mean, the microclimates too, it's like just that diverse climate would just kind of lend itself to a diverse uh, mm-hmm. food opportunity, you know, just. So like if you're in a river bottom in Pennsylvania, you have one set of plants, but if you go up to the top of your mountains, you'll have another set of plants and right. we have that too, but in, but just more of it. In, in spades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's interesting, man. So I want to, I want to shift gears here um, and, and talk about preparation and, and we can kind of frame this around deer specifically but i also want to just you know hear things about different types of game because i'm interested in eating pretty much anything i can get my hands on that's 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 game protein you know be it fish or um you know deer or you know elk or whatever the case might be you know no well, one in pennsylvania thing, you gotta eat your woodchucks i've never had woodchuck man i've had squirrel um rabbit of course woodchuck's not as good as squirrel but but you know good old woodchuck's basically deer really yeah, I mean, if you put it in a pot roast, everyone, oh, this is great venison. Yeah, it's woodchuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's man. mild. It's red. It's you know, it's nothing wrong with it. It's like muskrats, not so good. You really? can make muskrat good. But you have to make a muskrat good. You don't have to do anything to a to a woodchuck or or a deer to make it taste good. So I think I know. So okay, woodchuck. Is there a? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get you. I don't want to get you too far off the field. But uh, <laughs> right. But uh, I'm just curious. For deer, I'm just curious though, like when when would be a good time of year to 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 kill and eat woodchuck? Whenever you see them, really. So they don't have like a time of year where they'd be better. Well, they kind of sort of hibernate. You know the whole groundhog thing, right? Um, you know, it depends on how. I mean, occasionally you can see them in the winter, but I mm-hmm. usually when I lived in Virginia, I used to shoot them in in, um, in uh, fall. Okay. All right. All right. So back onto our deer topic. Yep. <laughs> so what I was going to kind of mention is is that. There are plenty of people out there, or a lot of people out there, you know, it's like, and I'll even run into hunters that kind of feel this way too, that kind of turn their nose up at game or maybe 
specific parts of, of wild meat, right? You know, and so what are some of the things that you think folks might be doing wrong, you know, and taking, you know, a deer that's safe specifically from field to table that might, that might taint or create a, a dish that's, you know, less than ideal? You know, what are the things that they should be keeping in mind when they're recovering their meat to make sure that they're going to have the best possible experience at the table? Okay. So if you're talking, all right, so you shot a deer, now what? Um, you've ceased being a hunter and now you're a butcher. Okay. So you have to, you have to, you have to toggle. So, got the deer where you find it, period, end of story. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only exception to that is if you can get it up on a gambrels with a hose and, a, and, and cool it down within, I don't know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can do that in the East. And I mean, I've done it in the West a couple of times. But, but if you actually have to pack the thing mm-hmm. or if, you, if you're going to be more than yeah, I mean, it depends on temperature, but if you're going to be more than 30 minutes, it's kind of a general rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. You've got the thing there. Right. Uh, because the thermal inertia of a, a large animal, I mean, anything from a turkey or a goose on to, to something larger, their, their body mass is so big that they won't cool right unless you, unless you hollow them out. Okay. So uh, what I always do is I carry some Ziploc bags and, um, you know, once you – once you get all the innards out, you know, you t- I save the heart, I save the, the liver on young, on young animals, and I save the kidneys. Hmm. Um, and if you, if you do it right, you can save the call fat as well. And the call fat is this lacy – it looks like fat lace and it surrounds the, the gut cavity. It is money. It's this – it's basically what you use it for is – as you know, venison's lean. Mm-hmm. So if you wrap a piece of backstrap in this call fat and grill it, it keeps the backstrap super moist. Interesting. Um, you know, there I have a couple recipes on the website that use it. Um, both ones and they're both sort of meatbally things. The French one's called crepinettes. Uh, it's basically a French meatball wrapped in call fat. Um, sounds nice. fancier than it is. Uh, <laughs> it sounds good, is what it sounds. Like. <laughs> it is really good. Um, and, you know, I've even – I don't want to get too far afield in this because probably one person listening to this will do it. But you can actually make venison tripe as well. Um, that's tripe. a deal where you need to be at a ranch. Okay. Because, you know, cleaning out a, a deer stomach is an icky business and um, I'm only going to do it if I've got a hose nearby. Right. But it can be done. So anyway, you've got your standard organs. Um, you can you set, them on, you set them on top of the, the – uh, the uh, plastic bags so that they cool off. You don't want to put a warm thing in a plastic bag. It's a bad idea. Right. Um, and so then you've got your deer opened and then, all right, we're, we're, we're on our way. So once you have the thing up, you, you can do a number of things. So if you've got a quarter it, if you're off in the, in nowheresville, like I often am, right. you skin the animal and then you quarter it out and you do that you know, you're doing that to pack it out, but you're also doing that and you don't go any farther than that because, um, there's a thing called shortening and it's a, it's a you, you have a race when the animal hits the ground, you need to do these initial butchery. This, you need to do this initial butchery work before the animal gets into rigor mortis. Okay. Uh, if you cut an animal when it's in rigor, you get this process called shortening. And shortening is – so imagine like everybody listening to this, hold out your arm and hold it out tight, right? Now imagine somebody just cut your bicep. 
that bicep's going to roll up like a Venetian blind. Right. And it's and in if the animal is in rigor, it's going to stay that way. So um, you often will hear somebody, well, yeah, I shot this doe, but the back strap was really was really tough. Well, that's why, because chances are you didn't let the animal uh, rest enough before you cut the back strap off the the backbone. Now you can, if you get right on the animal, you can you can take it off before it goes into rigor, and that's a uh, that's a butcher's term called hot boning. Okay, and there's a secret to that too. So if you hot bone something, which is just is a gross term, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, I was just gonna say there's. Like, <laughs> uh, here we go. We're going to jail. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, butcher's terms are loaded with that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, my twelve-year-old self just giggled while you said that. But it's okay. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, if you do that, it's so full of I want to say phosphorus. There's a, a particular mineral or element in the meat that dissipates as the animal ages. That the, if you make sausages with meat that has been taken off the bone before the animal got into rigor that has the absolute best binding qualities. Hmm. That's a little bit technical and, and sausage 3.0, but, but that's just a sort of, it's a side note. Right. I mean, the, the basic point is get your animal in, in a position where it can hang out for a few days quickly. Right. And then you have to let it hang out for a few days. Well, uh, the second biggest mistake people do is that they, they don't let it get through rigor and that's you're talking 48 hours right so you shoot the animal you got them in quarters or you're hanging them up um he's got no more skin and just chill man just give it at least 24 and really 48 is better um you want to be able to bend those legs again and when you can bend those legs again then all right finish the job that's just getting it through rigor that's not actually aging but that will that will go a long way into uh to give you more tender meat okay so just so i'm clear so you want the opportunity to hang right versus hot boning and taking the meat off the bone as as quickly as you can right is that what i'm hearing you can i mean i mean i live in i mean it's often 100 degrees where i'm hunting uh so there's nowhere to hang it right uh the what you want to do is you want to get the animal in its initial stages Mm-hmm. Whether it's hanging on a locker or if I'm out in the field, quartered, and the, the back strap off um, before it gets into rigor. And then once once you're there, you you know you can sit back and drink beer for 48 hours because you, know, you don't want to do any more butchering on it until the animal is through rigor mortis. Right. Okay. That's make- not aging. That's just, uh, that's, that's just like the basic stuff that you need to do. Right. That's actually – it's funny because I – by accident, I did it the right way <laughs> this year. So I, I ended up shooting a deer where it was warm, you know, the buck that I got. And we got it to my buddy's place and got it hung up. And it was probably in the 70s, like, you know, low 70s whenever I, when I shot it. And uh, within probably 20 minutes of uh, harvesting this deer, he was up with his hide off, the back straps out, and quartered and uh, on his way to cool. Perfect. Um, so, yeah, I felt like uh, – I felt like this is probably the first time ever that I did it the did it did it the uh, the right way. It's interesting that you say like it totally makes sense when you're talking about shortening. Like I totally like when you gave the analogy there, like that totally made sense to me. Um, and it, I could see how that would make it tough if you're doing your butchering whenever the shortening is happening, which would you mm-hmm. know give you less than an ideal scenario. 
What about because you you started mentioning hanging and that you were saying you know just letting it get through rigor isn't isn't hanging and I'm glad you made that clarifying point because I wanted to kind of touch on hanging in general and you hear all kinds of different philosophies from guys it's like you hang it with the hide on you don't hang it with the hide on you hang it for five days you hang it for ten days you know what is the appropriate way to hang a deer and let it age if that is what you want to do if you're gonna hang a deer with a hide on it better be damn cold right like damn cold because i mean it's advantageous because you don't get that rind uh on the meat when you finally do skin it but that hide holds in a lot of a lot of heat and it can be dangerous unless you get it into a you know and actually if if it was me i would i would drop the locker to like 27 degrees or Hmm. 26 degrees for the first you know eight hours or so that that deer's hanging and then kick it back up to 33 or 34 um, because you just want to get that deer cold as, and, and aging occurs in red meats like deer or, uh, elk or beef. You want to, you want to be real close to freezing. So mm-hmm. 33, 36 degrees. Um, and if you're going to age to age, right. you know, like aged beef, mm-hmm. I mean, you can go as long as you want, but if you want to taste it, it's 10 to 10 to 10 days to two weeks. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Would that hold yeah, true if you want to venison? taste that eight, if you want to taste that dry age flavor, it's ten days to two weeks, wow. and really two weeks. Wow. And does that hold true the same time period? Hold true for venison as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, do you is are you more in the in the camp of if you're going to age it, hang it, and age it? It you know, are you do you prefer? I guess let me ask you this: way. Do you prefer to get the hide off versus leave the hide on to age? I do because I don't. Here's a th- here's a sort. Of, I had a, a eureka moment when I was writing Buck Buck Moose. There's no reason to age a whole deer. There's mm. zero reason to age a whole deer, and here's why: dry aged flavor. And I mean, this is not again. This is not just getting letting it get through rigor mortis. This is actual aging. Right. If you if all of us who are listening to this who have eaten a dry aged steak, it's like, oh yeah, man, that was really good. Well, Who's the last? I mean, you're never gonna, you're not gonna get that. Oh yeah, I had that dry aged pot roast. It was really good. <laughs> I had that dry aged shank. It was really good. I had that dry aged burger. It was really no, no, right? No. Let's be serious, people. The only things that you want to dry age are things that you're gonna eat medium rare or medium or rare. Okay. If it's red inside, dry age it. If it's if you cook the hell out of it, you don't need to dry age it. So what that means is hind legs without the shank. And it means back straps, and that's it. I right. mean, if you have an elk, you can you can dry age, you can dry age the shoulder because you can get some steaks out of an elk shoulder. Right. But, but on a typical deer, I mean, it's got to be a monster deer if you're going to get flat irons out of the shoulder because that's the main steak that comes out of the shoulder is the flat iron. Right. You'd be talking like a Canada, like Alberta, yeah, something like that. You know, one where you have a chance. <laughs> it would be to get one of these. Jesus, it's coming right at us. You know. <laughs> I shot it out of self defense. <laughs> I was afraid it was going to eat me. Um, so another, another kind of myth or question, right. That you, or that you hear people, deer hunters talk about and stuff like that is they'll talk about, you know, uh, shooting a young deer versus an old deer. Is there anything that makes the deer taste different, whether it's age, whether it's, you know, shooting a buck during the rut, whether it's buck versus doe, like, is there anything to that, that idea? Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times. Yes. Um, so if you go through the steps we just talked about, a young deer will always be more tender. It's easier to eat well off a young deer than it is an old deer. That said, if you so if I shot something like if I shot something like the picture in your Skype thing, which is looks like a nice 
10 point. Mm-hmm. It could be an eight point. I don't know what, but it's a bigger deer. Right. So if you shoot a deer like, yeah, man, I got a nice deer. If, if that's your thought, you need to dry age it. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, the best venison I've ever eaten were bull elk or big muleys that were right at the beginning of the rut. Okay. So the rut really makes a difference. So either pre-rut or very or like the first couple of days of the rut. Um, if you get them then and then you dry age them, they're phenomenal because they have an extra layer of flavor. I mean, just think about it. Okay, so so you were talking about your 16 year old self before. Right. Who's more interesting? Who's more interesting? You or your 16 year old self? Uh-huh. I guarantee you, you're more interesting now than you were when you're 16. Right. <laughs> I guarantee you. Exactly. And, and so, so eating quality of a deer is the same deal. Okay. So, so a young animal is going to be nice, be one note, but an older animal aged properly is going to be memorable. Hmm. So now the rut is super important because if you get, if you get a big old swole up thing in the middle of the rut or, or even worse post rut, right? I think it's just stupid to shoot bucks post rut right. if you're going to eat them. Just stupid, because right. they're run down. They've lost a ton of fat. They've lost a ton of muscle tone. They're going to be they're often wounded. Um, it's just it's just a bad idea right. from a cook's perspective. I mean, it might be great from an antler perspective, but terrible from a cook's perspective. Right. Um, so yeah, that's one hundred percent accurate. The other thing that you know you mentioned diet, and diet does affect flavor in ways that are not as pronounced as say pigs or bear or ducks. Because remember, pigs and bears and ducks are all omnivores, and deer are not. Right. Um, you know, and I know there's that one guy he listened to. He's like, I saw a deer eat a mouse once. I'm like, yeah, okay. They <laughs> once in a while they do, right? But 99.999% of their diet is plants, right? So their flavor differences are not going to be as pronounced. But I will tell you this: here's one that just threw me. That coos deer. Mm-hmm. That coos deer was a. It was fat. Which I was stunned at. I mean, this is a desert deer. This right. is a desert whitetail. There is no agriculture anywhere near this deer at all. Right. And it was A, it was fat, and B, this will blow your mind, the fat did not coat your mouth even when cold. Oh, wow. That's crazy. That's the, it's the first deer. I mean, I write in my book and I write online. I'm going to have to update this thing online is that deer fat is often um, – Semi unjustly maligned. Um, so everyone says deer fat tastes terrible. Mm-hmm. Deer fat tastes great, it, but the problem with all the deer fat I've ever had until this coos deer is that it, when it cools, it's made up of stearic acid is the major fatty acid that's in deer fat, and mm-hmm. it's this long chain fatty acid that coats your mouth, and it's that mouth coaty waxy mouthfeel. It's not the flavor. It's the mouthfeel that drives people away from it. And that's justifiable because um, I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll use a little bit like because I like the flavor of it. It makes a venison sausage taste like a venison sausage. But right. if I'm doing a five-pound batch of, say, you know, venison sausage, I'm going to have probably three pounds of straight-up venison meat, a half a pound of venison fat, and the rest will be pork shoulder. Nice. So you have just enough in there and it's like, yeah, that's a venison sausage and not just a generic sausage, right. but not enough to coat your mouth. Nice. That's interesting that you talk about the – because the mouthfeel is the thing I think that turns people – because you're right. It's like I I mean I love venison and I don't enjoy that, but I yeah, I, I overlook it because I, I like to eat venison. You if know? you eat it super hot, like piping hot, mm-hmm. it's fantastic. Right. It's like shave off like thin shavings and fry them 
until mm. whatever's left is crispy and eat them hot with some salt on it, you'll it'll blow your mind. Oh man. Okay. You'd be yeah. like, "Oh my god, this is great. Where have you been all my life?" <laughs> but as soon as it get cold, don't don't touch them. Don't touch it. <laughs> Throw it. Yeah, out. you got like you got like a 30 second window and they're fantastic. <laughs> nice. Um, so I'm curious, man, like, so we've talked about, you know, getting deer to, from the field, catching deer, catching, catch, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Let> go. <laughs> <laughs> catching deers, making sure you're taking care of it the way it needs to get taken care of. So whenever it does hit your plate that you've done your due diligence on the upfront. Now I'm curious, I want you to give me the, the Hank Shaw venison dish that even the person who doesn't like venison couldn't deny. What's your go-to? That's a hard one. Yeah. It's funny because the the most the most innocuous. Well, I mean, I mean it's kind of hard for me because you know I have magical chef skills, so right. like <laughs> I can kind of make anything taste good. Right. Um, but I think for most people, w- it would be backstrap. Right. It would be a a backstrap cooked medium rare with a nice sauce. Like if I were to if I were to do a gateway drug venison for everybody, <laughs> it would be steak Diane. Yeah. Okay, steak Diane. I'm not familiar with what the steak Diane means. So just- steak Diane, um, for the record, it's on my it, the recipes on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just Google venison steak Diane, and you'll find it. So it's this very old dish, and Diane is is really Diana the huntress. Okay, it's a 200 plus year old French dish where it was originally done with venison backstrap back in the 1800s, and it's seared rare, medium, or whatever you know, however you like your steak. And then it's a sauce with a little bit of mustard, a little bit of stock, a little bit of brandy, um, a little shallot. Hmm. It's easy to make. It comes together in like a half an hour. And it's one of those – like if, if you're in your 20s and you want to impress a girl, learn this dish. There you go. Because it's, it's the perfect – I kind of know how to cook, but I'm still like – wet behind the ears right. and I want to really show this girl that I'm not just a buffoon know this dish right it's, it's super you can do it on a on a on an electric heater plate with one frying pan right. and you can make it and it's but, awesome but whenever you make this dish be sure to not tell her that you hot boned the deer because things could just go <laughs> south from there you know so <laughs> I couldn't help myself <laughs> you know I couldn't I couldn't then, help then myself like, <laughs> yeah exactly dirty old man exactly uh, exactly <laughs> Um, it's awesome because I, I actually make something similar to that. It's the it's my it's what, how I introduced venison to my daughter. My daughter absolutely loves it. When deer season rolls around, she tells me, "Daddy, go to the woods and get me a deer." She's like, "We need more venison," which is awesome to hear. Um, but it's uh, I take the backstrap as you suggest. I kind of cut it into little medallions and I put a little bit of olive oil in a pan, get it really hot, throw it in for like a minute on each side, roughly just enough to kind of brown the outside and let it red in the middle. And then I make a uh, a, a bourbon horseradish mushroom white sauce to put over top of it. And then I'll make like, you know, asparagus and maybe some type of like starch potato or something like that that goes with it. And that's kind of my go-to venison dish, which sounds. Yeah, I mean, that that works. Now here's a tip though. Um, Unless you have a giganta deer or Mm -hmm. an elk, Mm -hmm. don't cut steaks. Okay. Cut lengths of backstrap. So like on this coos deer, I got four, like on a, like on a big whitetail, like the one in your in your picture, mm-hmm. you probably get six. Right. So cut them in a you know foot long or whatever, uh, you know frying pan length. Mm-hmm. And you, the way you, I mean, this is all in the book and on the website, but um, that you dust them with salt and only salt, 
and you take them out of the refrigerator and you let them come to room temperature for a solid half hour to 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then you sear them in a pan. I like clarified butter, mm-hmm. uh, but you can use any – you can't use regular butter because um, it has a low smoke point and you'll burn it. Right. You can use butter later, and I'll tell you when. Okay. So you sear it off until it's the proper – until the whole log, if you will, the whole length of backstrap is done correctly. And if you don't know the finger test for doneness, uh, do you know the finger test for doneness? I do not. Ah, sweet. Yeah. Learning, learning moment. Exactly. Uh, so I used to work at a steakhouse, and when you work at a steakhouse, we are touching your meat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, so man. what we do is we sear off one side so it has that so those pretty cross hatch marks, uh-huh. and then the other side's raw. So when when you order a steak, we're finishing your steak to order. So all right, so everybody listening here, hold your hand out loosely, and with your other hand, touch the base of your thumb, that big pad under on the base of your thumb, and if you feel that, it's kind of gushy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's what raw meat feels like. Now just touch the, your thumb to your forefinger. Don't press it. Just touch them. Now, now press that same pad at the base of your thumb one more time. Hmm. It's stiffened up a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's rare. Now go to the middle finger. Do the same thing again. Oh, wow. That's medium. See, it's much more, it's much firmer, but there's still give. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go to your ring finger, see how firm that is? Yeah. That's well. And don't make me come to your house. Right, I was gonna say, um, that's, that, we, we could just call that ruined. <laughs> No, no, no. Do your pinky. Now do your pinky. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. There you that's go. cat food. That's cat <laughs> Nice. So that's – you do that finger test on the whole length of venison, uh, on the whole backstrap length. And then you – what you do is then you take it out and as soon as it comes out, you melt – you put a little bit of butter on it and, and coat it with the fresh butter. And now you roll it in whatever spice mix you want. Mm. In uh, um, spice mix or just black pepper, I usually just do black pepper, right. and then you let it rest a good five minutes, and then you then you cut it into medallions and serve it that way. There you go. If you do that, now why would you do that? So the answer is a: the whole thing is cooked totally consistently, consistently right? And b: it uh, you have that reveal of all pink meat, yeah, and it's beautiful, yeah, and it's and it's frankly it's easier. It's way harder to cook. You know the six medallions you're going to get out of that perfectly, right. all of them, yeah. than it is to cook the one perfectly. Yeah. So that's the only time I do steaks like that are with elk. Hmm. Interesting. I'm going to definitely have to try that because that will definitely up the game on that uh, on that dish because that's one of oh, my yeah. favorite dishes. But you're right. It's like I do struggle. It's like I have to pay a lot of attention when if I want to cook everything relatively similarly. You know what I mean? Yep. So um, I'm curious in this this two part or the second part of this question is is so moving away from, from, from game for just for one second, what is your beverage of choice when eating venison? Well, it depends on the day, but if, if you're going to pin me down on one, I'm going to say a French Cote de Rhone, um, a French red wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the specific blend that is, in my opinion, the king of all red wines for all game, mm-hmm. at least all red meat game, would be Chateauneuf de Pop. Um, mm. It's a it's a blend of often thirteen different kinds of grapes, and it's the king of the of that part of France. Wow. It's often you can get really good ones for you know in the twenty dollar to thirty dollar range. Mm-hmm. And you can spend more, but but you know for example, if you got a really good Bordeaux or really good California Cab, mm-hmm. uh, that costs you fifty bucks. Right. And here's a here's a, a wine that is every bit as good, 
that is n- not nearly as expensive, and it actually goes better with game. Nice. Uh, if you were to t- if you were to go the beer route, I would. I I'm pretty partial to like a solid brown ale, like mm-hmm. like brown ales that kind of look like porters. Yeah. Um, you you could go with a pale. But it has to be uh, an English pale. Okay. Uh, if you go with an American pale, they're just too hoppy. Right. And I love hoppy beers. Don't get me wrong, but I'm going to be drinking one soon. There you but, go. <laughs> but with food, the English style beers work better. They're um, a lot of the American beers are better drunk by themselves, where you can kind of think about the beer because there's kind of more going on. The English beers and the German beers tend to be. Um, better with food. So if you want to go German beer route, I would go with like a, like a spot and optimator. Oh yeah. You know, a uh, or a, a um, uh, Mertzen. Mm-hmm. Mertzen would be a really good beer with venison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like, uh, I definitely like my beers. I used to work in my, in a former life, uh, whenever I was a musician, I worked at a friend's bar and it was a craft beer bar and we had pretty much, I don't even remember. It was like 200 and some odd beers. So it was, wow. there's nary a beer, a craft beer or a import beer for that matter that I haven't tried. Now there's been some new introductions to the market since I worked at his bar. So there's some things that have been that are newer that I haven't had a chance to try, but um, most of most everything that we had we had on the shelf, which was pretty uh, pretty ridiculous. I'm curious, man. What is if if someone were going to start out, you know, so say someone just started hunting, right? And they're mm-hmm. gonna and they want to hunt because they say they want to hunt because they want to hunt to eat, right? Say so that's the approach. Yep. What is the best game meat? Do you think for someone to, that's just starting out cooking wild game that is going to give them the best opportunity to be successful with the dish? Is there like one that's kind of like a beginner game meat that you would feel that doesn't that can take a lot of abuse <laughs> to a degree? Well, I mean, I don't know that that's no, but if you're just starting to hunt and you are in whitetail country, I would say hunt whitetails. I would say shoot yourself a whitetail doe and start there um, because they tend to be tender. No, you you do have the fat issue, but I mean. Here's the thing. I mean, if you're in the wild world, fat is gold. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I have not bought meat or fish for the house more than a handful of times since 2005. That's awesome. Fat is uh, at a huge premium for us. So that's why I give away a lot of salmon every year because I catch a lot of salmon. But mm-hmm. I never give away bellies. Right. And we are blessed with uh, wintering ducks and geese. So our ducks and geese are fat. Um, we render out somewhere between a half a gallon and a gallon of wild duck fat every year because we're, we have that opportunity. Mm. Bear hunters often have the opportunity for a lot of fat. Virtually nobody else does. Hmm. You know, I mean, it's the, you know, if you hunt ducks and they're migrating, they tend to be skinny. Um, and almost all upland birds are skinny. Rabbits are skinny. Squirrels are skinny. Um, I mean, sometimes I've had fat squirrels, but, but, you know, no one's going to. No one's gonna confit a squirrel in its own fat. This is not gonna happen. You know. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome, actually. <laughs> I mean, now it's like challenge accepted, right? right you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, man, I want to be sensitive to your time, man. Uh, but I do have two last questions before I before sure. I let you go, and and I'll just kind of combine combine the two of them. So, is there anything that you've tried as far as wild game that you're just like, nah, not a fan? And two, oh yeah, and two. <laughs> is what is the weirdest thing by your standards that you've ever that you've ever made or ever cooked game that you've ever, oh, ever cooked, cooked. And, okay. and eaten yeah so 
the stuff that I'm just not a fan of. I just I'm not a fan of brains mm. uh, of any kind. Um, I guess I'm a bad zombie. Right. Uh, I don't love big hunks of liver. Okay. Like I like bird livers, but I have tried six ways to Sunday to make, you know, a big old slab of say venison liver mm-hmm. taste great. And I just don't like it. I like, I use the livers. I use them for lots of things, but I don't, I'm not going to do like a big old, big old slab of liver. It's just right. not going to happen. Right. Um, muskrats, we talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just, they taste like the bottom of a pond oh. and don't ask me how I know. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so they're gross. Mergansers. Like I'm never going to shoot a merganser. Right. Like, you know, they're the lawn darts are not for eating. Um, you know, but the, that's about it. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of, I heard, I, there, I have a friend in, I have a friend who's a trapper in, in Missouri who he eats skunks. Whoa. Yeah. I don't know yeah, how to get down with that. Thing. He's like, it's just a big old squirrel with a stinky butt, you know, and <laughs> like, all right, you go for yours, man. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I do have – I have limits. Uh, and I don't eat dogs or cats of any kind. Right. So, like, no no coyotes, no bobcats, no lions. Okay. It's just I'm, I'm okay with other people doing it. I just – I choose not to. Right. Now, the weirdest thing that I th- think of ever cooked and eaten, you know, weird by human standards and not mine, um, I would think the venison tripe. Is up there. Yeah. The crispy fried duck tongues is up there too. Ooh, um, crispy fried duck So tongue. the venison tripe, just because tripe's in, not in and of itself weird, but to actually do it from a wild animal, mm-hmm. that's pretty sporty. Right. Um, I have full instructions on how to do it in the cookbook, by the way. So like, I'm really hoping that someday somebody emails me and says, I actually did it and it was actually good. Like, this can make me so happy. Like so far, at least this book has been out over a year and I, I haven't gotten that email. So right. well, come on guys. Well, maybe, maybe it actually ends up under the tree for me this year and I could be that guy. I could be, <laughs> I could be your huckleberry. There you go. <laughs> and then the crispy fried duck tongues are super sporty as well. Um, so if you, if you eat a lot of Chinese food where Chinese people actually eat Chinese food. Right. So if you go to a Chinese restaurant and there's like a bunch of Chinese people there, um, chances are, there will be a duck tongue recipe on the menu somewhere. Nice. Um, they're not wasteful people. So, yeah. yeah. So the duck tongues are often about the size of your pinky and they have this little bone in the back of them and they stir fry them and I don't really much like them. And then I realized, well, you know what? You can take that bone out. So I will collect the tongues from the big ducks and geese that I hunt all year long and then I will braise them and then pull that bone out. Hmm. So then what you're left with is meat, collagen, and fat. And then you dehydrate that about halfway. Why? Because if you crispy fry something that's been braised and it's super full of collagen and fat, it will explode in your face. <laughs> Ask me how I know. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like someone might so, have learned from experience. Yes. Uh, picking them off my forehead. Right. Uh, so you dehydrate them halfway and then you dust them in um, in rice flour or cornstarch and then you crispy fry them then and you serve them with a dipping sauce. Oh my God. Nice. Like I guarantee if I put a platter of these out and didn't tell anybody what they were, they did go in seconds. Right. Because it's, it's crispy, ducky, fatty. Nice. Yeah. I think that, that sounds like a really good dish for around the holiday season when you have a lot of people over. 
and maybe you just do some correctly and maybe you do some incorrectly to where some <laughs> exploded some don't and you just kind of sit back and let the party come to you you know what i mean <laughs> or you know you you put you put them out on the platter like on new year's eve you put them out at like 11 so everybody's all three sheets to the wind already like, <laughs> yes. the greatest thing i've ever eaten like, what is yeah. it duck tongues <laughs> yeah exploding duck tongue oh that's great hey man so i want to be sensitive to your time here like i'd mentioned so i want to say thank you first and foremost for coming on and joining the show i learned a ton i'm sure everyone out there listening learned a ton about just the different ways to approach venison and then a couple of the different dishes that you shared but before i let you go if you wouldn't mind let the folks out there listening know where they can find out more about you and where they can get in uh get it get their hands on some of these cookbooks sure so all of my uh all of my books are available on amazon and they're and they are also available if you're a non-amazon person wherever fine books are sold um, <laughs> so yeah i mean you can get them in bookstores is what i'm saying and, and if you depending on where you live you can even find some in costco nice um so just you know my name is it's eight letters hank shaw h-a-n-k-s-h-a-w if you google that you'll find pretty much everything uh, my website is hunter angler gardener cook and i'm on instagram as hunt gather cook uh, i do a lot on instagram i do a lot on facebook i run a forum called um you know called hunts gather cook it's a closed forum so i have to let you in if you say that you heard heard us on this podcast i will let you in that means you're not a bot right. um and then I do a fair bit on Twitter also where I'm Hank Shaw. But you can probably find the coolest stuff on that Facebook forum, on my website, and on Instagram. Nice. And guys, be sure to give him a follow. I've been following Hank on Instagram and the food that you kind of you, you share it makes my mouth water while I'm at work most days and makes me extremely hungry. Um, and if you have a special hunter-gatherer um, in your family, you know, around the, the holiday season here, the uh, the cookbook would make a an excellent gift for that for that person. So, Hank, thanks for coming on, my man, and uh, happy holidays to you. Have a have a safe and merry Christmas and a happy New Year, and uh, uh, have a have a great 2018. I hope it brings you tons of exploding duck tongues. <laughs> thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me on. All right, thanks, man. Take care. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. We'd like to thank Hank for joining us, and would of course like to thank all of you for listening. If any of you will be headed to the Great American Outdoor Show in Harrisburg, uh, please let me know. I'll be there at the Exodus booth the weekend of February 3rd. So make sure to stop by, say hi. I'd like the opportunity to meet as many of you as possible and talk a little deer hunting to see how your season went and what you're looking forward to next year. Uh, also, if you haven't yet, if it's not too much to ask, uh, please head over to the iTunes, or to iTunes, the iTunes, yeah, to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. That uh, We'd be super appreciative if you would take a a quick moment and do that for us. Uh, of course, we need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Tecamani Seed, and Glacier Coolers. And until next time, we'll see y'all.
All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.